the case was the case. Um, it's a rare case when the qualities of the lawyer really make a difference. Ron Zonin, prosecutor in the 2005 trial of Michael Jackson. You, we, we all present the cases in, in typically consistent fashion. But if you've got a problem with your case, the problem's not going to go away because you have a talented prosecutor. The same thing for the defense as well. Um, we can all do our jobs as best we can. But in this particular case, um, childless cases are hard anyway because the jury intuitively understands that a guilty verdict changes this man's life dramatically. He's a lifetime sex offender registrant. He's a, a, a pariah. He's a social outcast for the rest of his life. Never mind prison, which people tend to perceive as difficult for child molesters, and it is. Um, but so, so those are challenges for juries in general. And, um, and then, you know, we had the difficulty of um, everything that they had raised about the family, the, uh, uh, the father's criminality, the, uh, the mother's... Um, difficulties on the witness stand and socially in general and it, it played to the defense well from luminary media and ninth planet audio this is telephone stories episode 11 it all backfired Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Bubba, what's going on? Man, Omar, I hate to be a gloomy glum, but Jenna and I just put the old dog Blaze down the other day. Oh, buddy, I'm really sorry. Oh, yeah. that's thanks. The old bear, she finally went to the farm. How old was she? Dude, she was almost 19. Holy smokes, man, that's amazing. Yeah, I think in dog years she was Teddy Roosevelt's legal secretary. <laughs> well. Man, I'm so sorry. You know, we had to put down Sam uh, last month ourselves. Oh, Samson, man, that sweet old cuss. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hate to start this on a sad note, but I got to say, it's tough losing an old dog. It sounds terrible, but it's it's almost worse than, like, losing a loved one. Well, I mean, I I don't know about that, but, I mean, yeah. let me qualify it, like an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, unless if you live with them, because as an adult human being, the dog is with you, like, every day. And night and sleeping in your bed. I mean, the cumulative hours of emotional bonding you have with a dog. Like, Blaze saw Jenna through so many transitions, some really tough ones. And she held on all the way through us dating and getting married and pregnant. And she was finally like, 
all right, I did my job. Yeah, I know. You know, Sam uh, witnessed the birth of our kids and took them into basically his home, too. And I, I totally get it, dude. I, I feel the same way. I'm, re- I'm really sorry, buddy. That's yeah, stinks. well, listen, let's shift this mood into the fun zone and talk about this <laughs> child molestation trial. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I just can't even bring up the podcast at, at dinner parties. Oh, you know? man, yeah. it's such a can of worms. Jenna can't wait for me to be done with this because we ruin, like, every event because people are like what are you working on and i'm like yeah this michael jackson thing and then it just it's you know it's downhill from there we start circulate uh circling the drain pretty quick if you know what i mean <laughs> i know we're the same thing we're the same way over here too man it's like amy's always saying like can we please talk about something else it's no just... kidding so before these prior bad acts witnesses from the 1108 ruling came in there's a few other prosecution witnesses i'd like to talk about Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. On March 28th, the same day as the 1108 ruling. Wait, explain that ruling again to me. The prior bad acts rule, right, also right. known as California Evidence Code 1108, allows prosecutors to introduce evidence that the defendant has committed other sex crimes in the past. Unlike other situations, these prior bad acts, they don't need to be proven. Hmm. The defendant doesn't have to have been convicted or even arrested of the alleged crimes that allows witnesses to testify to a defendant's prior behavior that's consistent with the case they're being tried in. Generally, evidence of prior bad acts to establish a disposition for criminal behavior is not admissible in court. But in cases of sex crimes, California allows it to be admitted. Like if a guy's arrested and tried for child molestation, people could come in and testify. They witnessed him acting inappropriately with kids in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. And with MJ, of course, that testimony was going to be focused on his past relationships with young boys. Right. Okay. Got it. So the same day as the 1108 ruling, comedian George Lopez arrived in the court. Testifying earlier today, comedian George Lopez arriving here at the courthouse as only a Hollywood celebrity can. MSNBC's Jennifer London reports. He showed up in a white stretch limo, followed by a small entourage of people. Lopez called as a prosecution witness. He testified today that he met the accuser in 1999 at a comedy camp, and he befriended the young boy. He said that when the accuser fell sick with cancer, he did go to see him at the hospital, and Lopez said that it was actually the boy's father who repeatedly asked for money and not the boy's mother. Prosecutor Ron Zonin. They did have a father in the family who really was a crook. And he was a problem. He was violent. Uh, he was vile. And it, it opened the door for them to make all kinds of accusations because many of those accusations as to father really were true. According to the LA Times, citing police records and court records, in 2001, Gavin's mother was granted a restraining order against David Arvizo, Gavin's father, citing daily violence in their marriage. David Arvizo pled guilty to misdemeanor corporal injury to his spouse in connection with the incident and was ordered to attend a program for domestic abusers. Later that year, he violated the restraining order by holding his daughter, Davelin, captive for more than two hours while he threatened to kill her and the family. He pleaded no contest to one count of willful cruelty to a child and received four years probation. He was a shakedown artist. He was somebody who who would try to get money. During the trial, Judge Melville unsealed police reports that revealed how the father had tried to exploit Gavin's illness to get money from celebrities, including the comedian 
George Lopez, the Times reported. Following George Lopez's testimony came a number of prosecution witnesses who surprised District Attorney Tom Sneddon and his team. There was a flight attendant, Cynthia Bell, who frequently worked on flights with Jackson, including the one from Miami that the Arvizo family attended. Sneddon promised in his opening remarks to the jury, the stewardess will tell you unequivocally, without hesitation and without contradiction, that on that flight with these boys that she served alcohol in, cans of Diet Coke, which were full of wine, Sneddon went on, and the boys drank, especially Gavin. Cynthia Bell, the flight attendant, testified previously to the grand jury that yes, she had served Jackson a lot of wine and vodka on the flight, and that Gavin was acting weird, and, when prompted by prosecutors in the grand jury proceedings, said it was possible that Jackson shared the booze with Gavin. But, when Bell took the stand in the 2005 trial, she testified, unequivocally, to never seen Gavin drink from the cans. She also testified that she routinely served Jackson alcohol discreetly, so children wouldn't see him drinking. She added that Gavin was rude on the flight, and that he yelled at her because his chicken dinner was not warm. There was levity the next day, when prosecutor Gordon Auchincloss asked Cynthia Bell, in relation to the previous testimony to Gavin's sister's recollection of the Miami flight, if she had seen Gavin and Jackson, who were seated next to each other, cuddling on the airplane. I wouldn't say cuddle, Bell said. He had his arm around him, listening to music at times. How do you define cuddling? Auchincloss asked. Cuddling? I guess I'd have to show you. The courtroom erupted in laughter. Without missing a beat, Auchincloss said, May I approach the witness, Your Honor? There was more laughter. According to Prosecutor Ron Zonin, upon entering the courtroom and seeing Michael Jackson at the defense table, some witnesses were starstruck by him and made 180s from their previous statements to investigators or pulled back to say they actually had misstated themselves in their grand jury testimony. They get into court and they see him and all of a sudden they forget what they're supposed to be saying. There was a former Neverland house manager, Jesus Salas, who testified to seeing Jackson drunk regularly and on occasion in front of the singer's own children. Prosecutor Gordon Auchincloss pointed out that Salas had previously told detectives he had been instructed to bring glasses and a bottle of wine into Jackson's room while the Arvizo brothers were present. One of the security people who told us that he brought um, he brought wine and glasses up to the room when Jackson was there with the kids. And by the time he got to court, it was Coca-Cola and glasses, soft drinks and glasses. When we pointed out the fact that he had said it was wine before, he said, oh, I made a mistake. All right, so my question is, was there anyone besides Gavin and Starr um, who could testify to Jackson giving them alcohol? Well, there was one witness, but it didn't work out for him to testify. Prosecutor Tom Sneddon told the jury Chris Carter was Michael Jackson's own security guard, and Carter himself told the grand jury he was with Jackson 24 hours a day. NBC's Mike Taibbi reporting. Sneddon had promised that Carter would repeat his grand jury testimony, that he saw Jackson's accuser drunk, staggering around, getting in this golf cart and driving around, and that Carter was the only witness besides the accuser's brother and sister who says he saw Jackson giving the accuser alcohol. But making it to the 
witness box in the Jackson trial is now a long shot because Carter is in a Las Vegas jail charged with robbing a jack-in-the-box and allegedly kidnapping a woman in the restaurant at gunpoint. Bail $850,000, which the 25-year-old Carter didn't make. Oh, no. Yeah, and Carter was important for the conspiracy charge against Jackson, according to the report by Mike Taibbi, because, as he told the grand jury, The accuser's mother was upset, crying, praying in her desire to escape Neverland. Ah, and he didn't testify because he was arrested and didn't make bail? I mean, couldn't they, like, have shipped him from Nevada to Santa Barbara? I mean... I imagine that it would actually make it easier to to get someone to testify if there's if they're like in manacles or well, like, it's a good point. And I asked prosecutor Ron Zellner about that, and he told me him and Tom Snedden fundamentally disagreed on this. Snedden wanted to bring Chris Carter in, according to Zonin. He told Snedden that whatever positives of having him testify to seeing Jackson giving the kids wine would have been immensely overshadowed by the offense that he was facing. It was like major league invasion robbery. Yeah, right. I mean, he reportedly kidnapped a woman at, at like, at gunpoint in a jack-in-the-box or something, yeah, right? Yeah, so think about it. He's not the best star witness, you know, character material-wise. And Zonin, you know, went head-to-head with Snedden. According to Zonin, he told Snedden, this would be like bringing a wheelbarrow of manure into the courtroom. Once it leaves, the stench will remain. And Zonin told me also that he felt that if this guy came in to testify, Mesro would have spent the entire time asking him about the heinous crime he allegedly just committed. And the guy would have ended up pleading the fifth over and over and over again. So he never testified. He never testified. Another blow to the prosecution came when Jackson's ex-wife and mother of his two oldest children, Debbie Rowe, took the stand. Prosecutors hoped that she would admit to being coached to appear in the famed rebuttal video, just like the Arvizos claimed they had. The implication from that would help bolster the prosecution's case that Gavin's mother, Janet, was being extorted to appear in the footage and that Jackson's handlers were doing so as part of a conspiracy. But when Debbie Rowe testified, she said she wanted to appear in the rebuttal video to show, quote, Michael as a wonderful person and as a great father and as generous and caring. When Prosecutor Zonin asked Debbie Rowe when was the last time she spoke with Jackson or her children, she said it was in 1999. In the course of this interview, Zonin asked her in regards to her appearance in the rebuttal video, Did you represent yourself as still being part of the family? Yes, I did, she said. Was that true? No, it was not, she answered. When Zonin asked her why she agreed to do it, she testified, because I would get to see my children and possibly renew a relationship with Mr. Jackson. That put the prosecutors in the awkward position of having to undermine their own witness. I don't remember what it was exactly that Debbie Rowe was supposed to have said, but she certainly didn't say it on the witness stand. We ended up having to impeach her with uh, statements that she told to the, to, the, to the cops. Entrepreneur, former stand-up comedian, and friend to the Arvizos, Luis Palanker, took the stand. Using previous conversations between Santa Barbara Sheriff's detectives and Palanker, which were secretly recorded, Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro tried to show that Palanker said she thought the Arvizo children had been coached by their mother to ask for gifts and money. Mesro read from the transcript of the tape recording and asked Palanker on the witness stand what she meant when she said to detectives about the Arvizo children 
that Janet would, quote, sell them at various charity events. Palanker, though, never recalled saying that Janet would sell them to the police. Here's Palanker recalling that exchange in court with Thomas Mesereau. And Tom, at some point, said to me on the stand, um, didn't you say that as as pertaining to her children, Janet Arvizo would sell them at the hospital, sell them at the laugh factory. And I'm like, I know I would never have said that. Would it refresh your memory to see the transcript? And then there's like this big parade of him walking around, handing me a giant notebook and telling me to read from here to here. Palenker read the transcript of the secret recording in court and pointed out that the portion Mesero read aloud as would sell them was actually marked as inaudible. It just clicked in, in my brain like what I actually would have said. And I leaned into the microphone and I said, I would have said she was seldom at the hospital and seldom at the laugh factory because David Arvizo took over this situation of his son being sick, kept Janet away from her sick kid which I knew something was twisted at the time. Like long before Michael Jackson came into the picture, I was like, what's up with this family? Like something's not right. It was the dad. He was controlling everything. Dr. Stan Katz was called to the stand. Katz, of course, was a psychologist who interviewed the Arvizo children in 2003 and decided their claims were credible. Prosecutor Zonin briefly asked Katz about his experience interviewing the Arvizo children and then on cross-examination, Mesero tried to characterize Katz as more of a media personality and less a child welfare professional. Kind of like the old, you're not a doctor, you just play one on TV bit. In fact, Dr. Stan Katz is highly credentialed and respected as a psychologist. But it's also true that Katz, who I will say I found charming and think he has a great camera face, has nurtured an entertainment career on the side. He appeared on many talk shows in the early 2000s as a self-help psychological expert, and even in some more fluffy talk shows. In fact, in our interview with him, I even noticed an Emmy on his desk. The, uh, real quick, what's the Emmy? That's for starting over. That's for starting over. Yeah, for hosting starting over. Okay. Oh, wow. That was an NBC show. Yeah. That was a show about women changing their lives. Um, it was about six women who lived in a house and who had a variety of life issues. There's a clip of the show on Dr. Katz's Reel, which is still on YouTube. There are many challenges for someone like you, Christina. You know, you had it all in some ways. You had the looks, you had the money, you had the men, but you didn't have the self-respect. At the trial in 2005, Thomas Mesro suggested that Dr. Katz was a self-promoter, and Mesro tried to dig into Katz's expertise in assessing victims of sexual abuse. Katz, over his 25 years, testified that he had worked on thousands of abuse cases, including those involving the Catholic Church. But Mesro focused on his knowledge of false allegations. He spent a lot of time talking about a lot of my work regarding false allegations because I had worked a great deal with false allegations. Katz attempted to clarify for the jury, as he did for me in our interview, that false allegations do happen, but typically are more common for children under five. Credibility is determined by a number of factors. It is consistency. Um, it is the lack of embellishment. Uh, it is without motive often. So what we're trying to determine here is when children are, are being honest, they usually are very frank about what happened to them. 
And when you ask them if something happened worse, they'll say, no, it didn't happen worse. But children who embellish and fabricate will go as far as you ask them. They'll say, oh, yes, they did everything to me. Um, because they don't really have the critical uh, cognitive ability to determine how it's going to look. Katz also attempted to clarify for the jury that adolescents and teenagers rarely are inclined to make up false allegations of being sexually victimized by an adult. Teenagers specifically do not want to be seen as abnormal or disturbed. So for teenagers to present themselves um, as victims of molestation or abuse is, is a courageous thing to do because it goes against, it's counterintuitive. Teenagers are trying very hard to be normal and to not be, to not be um, pointed out as different. So it's very rare that teenagers would embellish without without um, sufficient cause, justification. So one might argue, well, he thought there'd be a settlement or money, but you know, I, I've seen that these kids are not even attracted to money. They don't really understand the money. They don't really care much about the money. Um, that's very different than the older kids, by the way, and very different than the younger kids. Younger kids tend to tell you everything without thinking at all about their own personal um, uh, performance. But the age range from about 11 to 15 is critical. And what we see is kids there are very protective of their normalcy. So that also told me that when a child is going to speak about these kinds of unspeakable acts and, and very disturbing things, which are highly embarrassing to a child, that one has to um, uh, believe that they really are doing it for the reason of the right reason because it's the truth and because they're trying to protect other children. Mesero, throughout his cross examination with Katz, referred to the prosecution as the government for the Santa Maria jurors, whom Mesero believed had more of a libertarian spirit and would be disinclined to trust the government or its agents. To Dr. Katz, Mesero pointed at those sitting at the prosecution table and said to him, in order of each one, are you aware he is a lawyer? Then, are you aware he's a lawyer paid by the government? And then, are you aware their jobs as prosecutors are to seek convictions? When Mesero was going through the same line of questions, pointing at D.A. Sneddon and asked Katz, are you aware he's a lawyer? Dr. Katz answered, I assume he's a lawyer if he's in his position. When Mesero asked Katz of Prosecutor Auchincloss, are you aware that he's a lawyer, paid by the government? Katz parroted back flatly, paid by the government. Zonin objected to Mesero's behavior as argumentative, and Judge Melville sustained it. In Katz's opinion, the jury was getting bored. When I was testifying, I thought the jury was not particularly interested. I had heard from other people the jury was very interested in, in celebrities who testified. But when it was non-celebrity, weren't very interested. There were a few who looked very interested. I don't feel they really listened very much to the questions, uh, to the answers. The same day as Katz testified, attorney Bill Dickerman took the stand. Dickerman was the original lawyer the Arvizos met through the Laugh Factory's Jamie Masada. All right, I've got a quick question here. Lay it on me. So what about um, attorney-client privilege here? You know, like, isn't that stuff protected? Well, it usually is, but according to Prosecutor Zonin, for whatever reason, Janet Arvizo 
totally waive this privilege for herself and her children. Huh. All right. So I guess it's fair game. It's fair game. Dickerman testified for the prosecution about representing the Arvizos. He spoke about his letter-writing campaign on their behalf to Jackson's original defense lawyer in the case, Mark Garagos, to give the Arvizos clothes, birth certificates, and passports back. He did another letter-writing campaign, one to media outlets, in an attempt to stop airing the Martin Bashir documentary, which Dickerman implored in his letters exploited the Arvizo children, whose mother never signed away permission to use their likeness. Here's Mesereau's recollection of Bill Dickerman's appearance in court. I noticed when he showed up for court that he appeared to have his, I think, his wife and one, one child, I think, may have been a son. And my impression was that this was a big event for him. When it came time for Dickerman's cross-examination, Mesero pointed out for the jury that Dickerman had an agreement with Larry Feldman to get a percentage of any civil settlement from the Arvizos if Jackson ever paid them off. This is a practice among some attorneys who recommend clients called fee-sharing. Mesero tried to make it look shady for the jury. Dickerman, though, testified repeatedly that the Arvizos never said anything to him about getting money from Jackson. Mesero then shifted course, asking Dickerman if the Arvizos ever said anything to him about Jackson giving the children alcohol, if they ever said anything to him about Jackson showing the children pornography, if they ever said anything to him about molestation. The answers were no, no, no. Mesero says his point was that the Arvizos never came forward with those accusations until after they had met with Larry Feldman and Dr. Stan Katz, two people involved in the Jordan Chandler case. Mesero was channeling his opening thesis to the jury. This was all part of a shakedown of Jackson, much like, he believed, what happened to the singer in 1993. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
But I don't think he expected to be aggressively attacked the way he was. On April 1st, 2005, attorney Larry Feldman was called to the stand. Feldman was a big name in Southern California legal circles, though far better known for asking questions of witnesses than being one himself. Prosecutor Sneddon began his direct examination with a back and forth about Feldman's incredible career as a lawyer, the many settlements he'd made, his high-profile clients, and accolades. Feldman readily agreed. I have represented a lot of entertainment people suing studios, he testified. I have defended studios. I have represented individual people who have legal malpractice claims against lawyers, and I have defended lawyers who have been accused of malpractice. I have sued rock groups and defended rock groups. I asked Thomas Mesereau if he was nervous about facing off against a lawyer of Feldman's stature. No, because first of all, in the middle to late 1980s, continuing into the 90s, I did try legal malpractice civil cases. I tried some plaintiff's cases, I tried some defense cases, and examining lawyers was something I was quite familiar with. And lawyers can be surprisingly easy witnesses to make look bad. You know, lawyers are taught to be very clever and very careful with the words they choose. And lawyers will often hesitate before they answer a very basic question to make sure they choose the proper words. And jurors, as they observe this kind of process, will often not trust the lawyers. And it happens to, the, to very, many very bright lawyers will just hesitate, carefully choose a word, carefully consider whether they, the words they choose will lock them into something or uh, enable them to wiggle out of something. I mean, I've seen this my whole career. In the 2005 trial, Jackson's lawyers filed a motion, which Judge Melville approved, that revealing the amount of the Jordan Chandler settlement, reportedly over $20 million, would be prejudicial and compromise Jackson's right to a fair trial. But both sides in the trial were still allowed to discuss the terms of that settlement, and Feldman revealed, among other things, that Jordan Chandler's parents were included in the settlement at the insistence of Jackson's lawyers who wanted to be sure that they were bound by its confidentiality terms. Prosecutor Sneddon also asked Feldman to explain an unusual aspect of the settlement which was entered as a confession of judgment, a concession that made it more difficult for Jackson later to wriggle out of making payments. From Feldman's testimony, in a confession of judgment, it is though we went to trial and had a lawsuit and the jury came back with a verdict and we had a judgment or the judge came back with a finding. And when the judge says somebody's at fault and here's your damages, you put it into a judgment. And when you have a judgment, you can file that judgment in the county, and then you can execute on that judgment. When Sneddon had finished his attempt to make Jackson appear extra, extra guilty of molesting Jordy Chandler, Mesereau got his turn. Here's his recollection. So examining lawyers and making them look bad is something that's not foreign to me. In addition to that, Feldman, I assumed, would have a very big ego. And... You know, even the brightest, most successful people can be blinded by ego. Cross-examination was a sparring match between two skilled lawyers, both comfortable in a courtroom. It got testy. At one point, when going through the complications of the 1993 Chandler case, 
Mesereau asked if Feldman was in communication with the lawyer for Jordy Chandler's stepdad. Who was the lawyer? Feldman asked from the witness stand, his memory of the complicated events hazy after a decade. I don't remember. Who was the lawyer in that? I'm questioning you, Mesereau said, so I'm asking you. Oh, Feldman replied. You don't want to answer my questions? It's not so much fun. On the issue of a confession of judgment, Mesereau walked Feldman through a series of questions to show that it didn't mean an admission of wrongdoing from Jackson, but rather a financial tool to collect assets if necessary. And the confession of judgment, Mesereau asked, has nothing to do with an admission of wrongdoing or liability? Feldman answered, I've never handled a case where you filed a confession of judgment, and then somebody tried to use that in another case to say you admitted something. I frankly don't know the answer. Mesereau asked, You had settlement language that said neither side admits wrongdoing to the other, and you also had the confession of judgment you just described. True? Feldman responded, True. Mesereau also tried to establish for the jury that the Arvizos were using the criminal trial to get a conviction of Jackson, which, he emphasized, would make it easier to win a civil suit and be awarded a large amount of money. But Feldman denied it. Part of the defense argument was that the Arvizos and he were using the criminal process to win their civil case. In other words, if Michael Jackson was proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest burden of proof in our legal system, uh, all they had to do was take a certified copy of that judgment of conviction and file it in civil court, where the burden of proof is far less. It's preponderance of the evidence. And liability would be automatically established. You wouldn't have to go through the time and expense of establishing liability. The only issue would be the amount of damages. So, as I recall, Feldman tried to use fancy words to show that it wasn't all that simple, that if you tried to get punitive damages, you still would have to prove malice, which would mean you'd still have to prove liability, and tried to get too cute. Judge Melville got the last word on the battle of the lawyers and the comics who had preceded them on the stand. You know, he said to the courtroom, I was thinking that between the comedians and the lawyers, I kind of like the comedians better. Jesus, man. I mean, it feels like the prosecution's case is, like, falling apart here. You could say that. Thomas Mesereau would definitely say that. A lot of it fell apart, one witness after another, to the point where I think the jury began to see a pattern. You know, their witnesses are just getting destroyed every time. Like Gavin Arvizo, right? It, it doesn't seem like his testimony held water for the jury because, mm-hmm. like, he didn't remember things correctly. Every time um, Mesereau would, like, trip him up on that. And the same with his little brother and his sister. Yeah, which, of course, because of their family history, when you compound that, it kind of made things even less believable for the jury. Right. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like the jury really understood from, like, some of the the experts, like Dr. Stan Katz and um, Dr. Ukiza, that it's actually common, right? Like, we now understand it through this process. You and I have you know, come to learn that it's common for child victims of sexual abuse to be inconsistent, right? Right, yeah. It's actually suspicious if they are consistent, according to some of these experts. So it's expected that, you know, children's memories will be foggy. 
um, in cases of sexual abuse. But that also was just like one element of the prosecution's case that kind of died out here. You know, there was Mm -hmm. also the conspiracy counts of Jackson being this kind of criminal mastermind that they had as a charge. But then, for example, a phone systems expert, this guy, Jack Green, he inspected all the Neverland phone systems and everything. And he testified that, like, yes, Jackson could listen into the calls or join in on a call that people made at the ranch. But also anybody could call out and dial out from the ranch. Oh, yeah, that's totally another backfire. I mean, and the point was kind of like illustrating that if Janet Arvisa was, like, in quotes, trapped there, she could have easily called the police, right? Exactly. And he also testified that the system was actually installed in the late 1980s prior to Michael Jackson even purchasing the property. So it's not like Jackson set up some evil James Bond villain-style phone system. Right. Or the, uh, who's the, the villain in um, Inspector Gadget? Um, I can't Dr. remember. Dr. Claw? Dr. Claw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and to the notion that the Arvizos were, quote-unquote, trapped there, the prosecution brought up that there was this note at the guard station to not let the Arvizo boys leave the ranch, you know, which kind of looked bad. But then this guard, Brian Barron, who was also a police officer in the neighboring town of Guadalupe, he testified that it actually wasn't abnormal to not let children leave the ranch unattended because it wasn't a safe thing to do when the parents weren't there. And then he also testified as a police officer that he would have reported witnessing any illegal activity at the ranch and he never had any reason to do so. Huh. Okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And there was also a detective sergeant. This is kind of a little messy, but there is a detective sergeant for the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department, this guy, William F. Caldwell, who testified to raiding the offices of Bradley Miller. If you remember, Bradley Miller was the private investigator who worked for Jackson's first attorney, Mark Garagos. Right, right, right. Uh, he was the one that um, Jackson fired because he was busy uh, representing Scott Peterson, right? So... Bradley Miller, the PI, was the one who was doing all the surveillance on the Arvizos at Garagos's directive. And through questioning of William F. Caldwell, the defense was able to establish for the jury that just because Bradley Miller was doing surveillance on the Arvizos, it wasn't proof that Jackson had any knowledge about the surveillance. Right, because if they couldn't prove that Jackson knew about the surveillance... Then it was hard to show that Jackson was part of this conspiracy or this criminal mastermind. All right. So what happens next then? Well, I want to pause though real quick because I do want to make a note that in the middle of the trial, Johnny Cochran died and Cochran of course represented Jackson in the second part of the Chandler case. And he passed away at the age of 67 and his funeral services were held at the, um, you know, the West Los Angeles cathedral. Right. And it was this, totally star-studded event like a who's who of african-american political and entertainment heavyweights like spike lee was there representative maxine waters stevie wonder sean p diddy combs as i call him still puff daddy al sharpton magic johnson and uh jackson and tom mesero took a break to attend the funeral god bless you mike god bless you mike also attending of course was oj simpson and you will never guess, incidentally, attorney Larry Feldman. I thought Feldman was on, on the opposite side of Cochran in the Chandler case. 
Yeah, he was on the opposite side. But also, he and Johnny Cochran were good friends. And Larry Feldman even represented Cochran in this very long-running palimony lawsuit. Well, that's still kind of wild. Well, you know, Omar, there's all those old jokes about lawyers and stereotypes about lawyers being bloodsuckers. But you know what? I'm doing this show to let you know that lawyers are people, too. <laughs> okay, so set this up for me anyway. This Okay, so I'm actually going to let NBC's Mike Taibbi set this up. But here's the thing. I talked to Jim Rogan last week, the former California assemblyman who authored the bill allowing this old evidence in, and he said this could be a case to be careful what you wish for for the prosecution, because every one of these witnesses is going to be attacked by Jackson's team. Many of them sold their stories to supermarket tabloids and tabloid television. Two, as I mentioned, were involved in a losing lawsuit against Jackson. Others have changed their stories demonstrably, and you know that Tom Miserable, as he said in court today, is going to conduct full-blown trials, if it comes to that, to try and impeach every one of these stories. But the story's going to get in, uh, it's cumulative stuff, and you wonder what the effect of the, on the jury is going to be when they hear not one, not two, not three or four, but five previous incidents and witnesses who are saying it happened then too. Huh, so how did it shake out? Blanca Francia took the stand. She worked as a personal maid for Jackson between 1986 and 1991. First, at his parents' Havenhurst complex in Encino, and his hideout apartment on Wilshire, and then at Neverland. Once the Jordan Chandler case broke in the press, Blanca sold her story to hard copy for $20,000. Blanca Francia was the longtime, very, very loyal maid, chambermaid for Michael Jackson. She was the only one allowed in his master bedroom suite at Neverland. Reporter Diane Diamond. Diamond worked for the tabloid TV show Hard Copy in the 1990s and interviewed Blanca Franzia for the story in December 1993. She told me about cleaning up the bedroom and the jacuzzis and after Jackson had entertained little boys and picking up little boys' underwear and all sorts of disturbing things. Diamond and her book about the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, were sources for telephone stories. In the book... Diamond includes a transcript of what she describes as the entirety of her interview with Francia, versus the snippets what made it onto hard copy. In the transcript, published in the book, Francia told Diamond she quit working for Jackson because she was tired of what was going on with him and little boys. Francia told Diamond she saw the singer taking baths and showers with them, according to the transcript in the book. Francia told her that once Jackson left his parents' compound and moved into Neverland, she witnessed young boys visiting the ranch for longer periods of time, staying for weeks instead of days. Yet, in her testimony at the 2005 trial, Blanca Francia said of the hard copy interview that she didn't expect the questions from Diamond about Jackson's fondness for boys. She testified, I thought it was going to be about me working. Two years after Blanca Francia quit her job working for Jackson, the Jordan Chandler scandal broke, and authorities interviewed her. It was then, according to her testimony in the 2005 trial, that she told them she suspected something happened between her son, Jason, and the singer, after seeing the two of them, her son, eight at the time, together in a sleeping bag. According to her testimony at the trial, following that event, investigators contacted Blanca Franzia to interview her and her son Jason. It was then, in late 1993, 
that Jason disclosed to investigators alleged molestation by Jackson from the times he would accompany his mother to her job. Jackson, Jason Franzia alleged, had tickled him on multiple occasions, touching his private parts. Former Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss recalled interviewing Jason Franzia during her investigation of the Jordan Chandler case. As with Chandler, Weiss still declines to identify the alleged victims by name. I interviewed another child at the time, and um, we believe that uh, things that happened to this child also, uh, and uh, but even when we could not proceed with the first child, uh, when he declined to cooperate uh, any further, uh, we did not believe that the second child at the time uh, would have been a strong enough witness to carry the case. Uh, I just remember when I interviewed him, um, his language skills were not that great. Uh, his eye contact was not that great. Uh, he just uh, would not have been able to carry uh, such a case against a public figure. According to a piece in the LA Times, Blanca Franzia gave a deposition to investigators relating to the Jordan Chandler case and told them she had never seen Jackson inappropriately touch or molest anyone, nor did she mention seeing Jackson in the showers or baths with any boys. In addition, by the time Blanca Franzia had given another deposition, this one to Jordan Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, portions of which were filed in Superior Court, according to the LA Times, Franzia had already compromised herself as a witness by selling her story to hard copy. In 1996, Blanca Franzia settled the claims of molestation of her son by Jackson for a reported $2 million. At the time of the 2005 trial, Blanca Franzia lived in Santa Barbara County and worked as a caregiver for the elderly and disabled. When she took the stand, she testified to seeing young male children staying for weeks at Neverland. She testified that she once entered Jackson's bedroom and heard him and another boy, whom she identified as Wade Robson, about age eight at the time, in the shower with the singer. She testified that she entered the bathroom partially and saw their clothes and underwear on the floor, the glass of the shower fogged up, but seeing their figures together, naked, inside. Blanca Franzia further testified to becoming concerned about her son accompanying her to work when she saw her son sitting on Jackson's lap, the singer reclining and reading him a story. Later, she testified, she found them together on the floor in Jackson's so-called hideout apartment in a sleeping bag. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro had promised to turn each accusation against Jackson into a mini-trial, and now he delivered. On cross-examination, Mesro challenged Blanca Franzia on the litany of issues, attacking her credibility, her reliability, and her truthfulness. Not only for selling her story to hard copy, but how, when she worked at Neverland, she had to have her wages garnished to pay creditors. How she once glanced inside another housekeeper's purse to see the housekeeper's paycheck amount. And how, when she arrived from El Salvador, she had a fake social security number. Mesro brought up the gifts she had received from Jackson, and painted her, just as Jackson's lawyers had a decade before, as a disgruntled former employee. In turn, the attorney who represented Blanca Franzia in her $2 million settlement with Jackson 
testify to the terms of that settlement. Because he wasn't testifying to confidential conversations with his clients, he could testify without violating attorney-client privileges. On cross-examination, Mesereau focused on emphasizing the language of Blanca Franzia's settlement agreement that stated that Jackson denied any wrongdoing in the case and that Jackson was merely settling to avoid damage to his reputation. Mesereau read aloud from the settlement, Jackson specifically disclaims any liability to and denies any wrongful acts. He went on, The parties acknowledge that Jackson is a public figure and that his name, image, and likeness have commercial value and are an important element of his earning capacity. When Jason Franzia took the stand to talk about his alleged molestation by Jackson that he made the settlement over, he was emotional. Jason, now 24 years old, worked as an auto parts salesman and testified to being a part-time youth pastor. On his direct examination by prosecutor Ron Zonin, Jason told how, as a child, his mother would take him to work with her as Jackson's maid, because as a single mom, she had no one else to care for him. He told the story of being seven years old and Michael Jackson playing a tickling game with him while he watched cartoons. Jackson would be tickling him from behind, he testified, and then the young Jason would try to tickle him back. Soon, Jason testified, Jackson began to move his hands over the boy's crotch area. When Zonin asked Jason Franzia if he recalled how long the tickling lasted, he said, about two cartoons worth, according to his testimony. Jason testified that afterwards, Jackson gave him a $100 bill. He became emotional again when he testified to another occasion, years later, while accompanying his mother to work at the ranch, of Jackson laying behind him on a couch, tickling him and touching his genitals. Zonin asked Jason Franzia, were you mindful at the time? Were you aware at the time he was doing it? Yes, he answered. What were you thinking at the time? You're now ten and a half years old. What were you thinking? Jason answered, he recalled thinking, I should probably go. He paused at one point. This is going to be hard for me to get through. Sorry, Jason said. In response to Zonin's questioning, Jason then cut ahead to being 13 in 8th grade and seeing the Jordan Chandler scandal on the news. He testified about the day that two detectives interviewed him about Michael Jackson. He said that was when all the crappiness started. When asked what he meant by that, Jason testified, I guess, coming out with it. Just because I had hidden it and it was stowed away in a far-off place. And that's what I meant. It was time for it to come out. Prosecutor Zonin asked him, Did you discuss with the detectives what had happened to you with Mr. Jackson? Yes, he answered. Eventually, but at first, I didn't want to. I was fighting it with everything that I could. Why? Because it's embarrassing, he said. It's embarrassing now and I'm 24 years old. He testified that following his disclosure to the police at age 13, he entered counseling until he was 18 years old. He said he didn't participate in or even learn about any settlement that his mother made with Jackson until he was 17 years old. When it came time for Thomas Mesero to cross-examine the already emotional and nervous Jason Franzia, he was determined to raise questions about his credibility. Mesero started with a familiar routine, bringing up the inconsistencies of what he testified on the witness stand versus what he said as a child 
when he first met with law enforcement agents. You repeatedly told them you had nothing to tell them because you didn't remember anything improper, Mesereau asked. What I remember is them telling me if he did something, then tell us, Jason Franzia recalled from his interaction with police investigators at 13. And I was, no, I'm not gay. I was fighting it again, he said. Mesero then tried to point out how Jason Franzia couldn't remember how long the alleged tickling molestation occurred when he was seven or eight years old. You didn't know how long the tickling continued, Mesero asked. No, I didn't have a stopwatch. You don't really know how long it continued, do you? I could go by Woody Woodpecker, Jason said. Mesero pressed him about receiving gifts from Jackson. He asked him whether he received money from the singer. Jason Franzia replied coldly, other than the money he put down my pants. Following his testimony, a British journalist claimed to have passed by the jury patio area and overheard jurors mocking Jason Franzia's testimony about his alleged molestation as a child. He indeed said that as he walked by the jury assembly area, and if you can look behind me, you'll see a green fence. Former Santa Barbara Sheriff Jim Thomas appeared on MSNBC. It's basically a wire fence with a little covering. You cannot see the jurors there, but if you walk by, you can hear them. That as he walked by, one of the jurors was saying something to the effect of, wah, wah, he touched me, or boo-hoo, he touched me. According to the report, a court administrator, Daryl Parker, told the press the event was an unsubstantiated rumor and that it was not being investigated. Ah, oh, geez, man. I'll tell you, if that's true, that is just terrible. I agree. I mean, can you imagine having that kind of a hard time testifying, mustering up the courage to do that, you know, alleging, you know, assuming these things are true, and then hearing that the jury maybe mocked you afterwards yeah man that i mean it is really awful and i I, you know i've got to say as much as i think it's really slimy that jason francia's mom sold her story to hard copy it's pretty compelling to me that he seems to be telling the truth here and especially knowing all that we've learned about how young boys deny the molestation and that their stories were you know very often inconsistent I mean, it's like the same thing with Jordy Chandler's case. As much as I love Michael Jackson, I do have to ask myself, why was he settling these cases? Right. You know, but also I can't help but follow the timeline of these accusers and find it all suspect, you know? I know, man. You know, I'm, I I guess I'm just suspending judgment here until the end, until we get to the end of this thing. Um, All right, so who was next in the prior bad acts testimony, then? Okay, so it definitely was a parade of characters, and we obviously don't have time to get into them all, so I'll just give you the highlights. Okay, great. So these first three need a little bit of a preamble, so wormhole alert. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, go ahead. It's it's the last wormhole, I promise uh, you. Dollars to donuts, it's not, man. Okay. That's fine. So, according to the L.A. Times, five former Neverland employees who would later be called the Neverland Five sued Jackson and a couple of his employees for wrongful termination that they said occurred because of their cooperation in the Jordan Chandler child molestation case. Huh, how so? Well, according to testimony from the 2005 trial, 
a number of the employees alleged that after either giving depositions in the case or testifying in the grand jury proceedings for the Jordan Chandler case, that they were harassed by Jackson employees. They had death threats made against them, or in some of the cases of the women, alleged that they were sexually harassed by a staff of these special guards that were brought into Neverland afterwards to monitor employees. Again, they allege. Oh, oh, right. Did I think we talked about this um, in uh, was it episode five where we talked about this and Jackson uh, where he pleaded the fifth? Is that right? No. So that was actually the Havenhurst five, a separate case filed in November '93. Let me give oh. you a primer slash reminder on the Havenhurst five real quick. The Havenhurst 5 case, as it was later called, involved five security guards who worked at the Jackson family compound in Encino prior to Michael's move to Neverland Ranch. Those guards were also alleging, like the later Neverland 5, that they saw boys enter Jackson's quarters and not emerge until the next morning, according to the LA Times. One guard alleged that he was instructed by Jackson to retrieve and destroy a Polaroid photo of a naked boy from Jackson's bathroom. The guards were fired, they alleged, for knowing too much about Jackson, and they subsequently filed a wrongful termination lawsuit against the singer. The men had signed confidentiality agreements with Jackson, promising not to sue him, but they claimed they signed the agreements under duress. Their suit was dismissed in April 1998. Jackson's attorney said, the men were simply after money. I mean, that's the line, it sounds like. Yeah, that's the line. The people were after money. Yeah, exactly. So what was the point of all this? Well, the point is to forget about the Havenhurst Five. And remember, the Neverland Five. Because a number of them, not all five, only three, testified to the prior bad acts section of the prosecution case. Ah, uh, okay, got it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. One of the Neverland Five that testified was Ralph Chacon, a local guy, born and raised in Thousand Oaks, who worked the graveyard shift at Neverland, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. He testified at the trial, as he had to the grand jury in 1994, to witnessing two separate incidents of Jackson molesting Jordan Chandler. In the first instance, he said he saw them leave the outdoor jacuzzi and then Moments later, saw them fully nude in the shower of a nearby restroom area. Chacon testified that he saw them in the shower through a window as Jackson passionately kissed Jordan all over and then, quote, put the little boy's penis in his mouth. In the second instance, Chacon testified that about a month later, he saw Jackson and Jordan Chandler in front of a Peter Pan display located in a breezeway near the offices. Again, he testified to seeing Jackson passionately kissing Jordan, this time Jackson's hands rubbing on the boy's crotch. And let me guess, Mesereau demolished him on cross-exam as usual. 
slaughtered him. Jackson had countersued Ralph Chacon and the rest of the Neverland Five, and Mesereau confronted Chacon with testimony from that trial. According to that testimony, Chacon and the others asked for $16 million from Michael Jackson. But they lost the case and were instead ordered to pay Michael Jackson $1.5 million. But Chacon filed for bankruptcy. There was also a specific judgment against Ralph Chacon in that case. He was ordered to personally pay Michael Jackson $25,000 for, quote, stolen property. And according to Chacon's testimony, the stolen property charge was for taking some candy bars from the Neverland movie theater. Whoa. Man, I got to say, this feels like a, a hit job on these guys. <laughs> or as Mesero tried to frame it, these guys were trying to do a hit job on Michael Jackson. Right. Mesero brought up a slew of other credibility issues on Ralph Chacon, in particular having his wages garnished for child support payments and selling his story to the tabloid The Star, if you know that tabloid. All right, so who else um, was in this prior bad acts um, testimony? Another guard, Kasim Abdul, also part of the Neverland 5 lawsuit, testified to seeing portions of what Ralph Chacon saw that same night, minus the oral sex and nudity. Abdul testified to seeing Jackson and Jordan Chandler leave the restroom, Jackson with a towel wrapped around his waist, giving Jordan in a terry cloth robe a piggyback ride to the main house, and then double locking the doors afterwards, something Abdul testified was unusual. Judge Melville ruled that Abdul couldn't testify to another salacious incident that would later be reported in the Associated Press. That story, filed by Linda Deutsch, reported that Prosecutor Tom Snedden had filed papers with the court describing an incident in which Jackson ordered Kasim Abdul to fetch a jar of Vaseline from the console of Jackson's car and deliver it to his bedroom. Deutsch quoted the document, saying that when Abdul arrived at Jackson's bedroom, he found the singer sweaty and with an erection under his pajama bottoms. Abdul, according to the papers, saw a young boy in the bedroom with Jackson, who he believed to be Jordan Chandler. All right, true or not, I mean, gross on gross on gross. And on cross-examination at the trial, Mesero, what did he do? Did he knock him down too? Yeah, he brought up how Abdul claimed that he was, quote, emotionally disabled due to the threats and intimidation at Neverland that he alleged and too distraught to find work. Mesero pointed out that an insurance company refused to pay Abdul benefits because they determined that he actually wasn't disabled, and Abdul agreed on the witness stand. There were also minor things like when he was an employee at Neverland Ranch, Abdul put gas in his car from there without getting permission, and he got written up for it. And Mesero also brought up the failed Neverland 5 wrongful termination lawsuit that Abdul was a co-plaintiff in against Jackson, which Mesereau pointed out for the jury that trial lasted six months and was the longest civil trial in history at the Santa Maria courthouse, and Abdul never even paid Jackson a dime of the damages he was ordered to pay. Good grief. Other prior bad acts witnesses were more of the same. Allegations of seeing Jackson in compromising situations with boys followed by questions about the witness's credibility. They included Philippe Lamarck, a former cook at Neverland in the 1990s, who testified to seeing Jackson fondling Macaulay Culkin while the boy was distracted playing video games. Lamarck testified to coming upon the scene and nearly dropping the tray of french fries that Jackson had ordered. Culkin, 
has always maintained that Jackson never behaved inappropriately with him. When Deputy DA Gordon Ockenkloss asked whether Lamarck had reported what he saw to the police, Lamarck answered, no, because nobody would ever believed us. Michael was on top of everything. And if we had come and said this to the police, they would have said, what kind of proof do you have? He added, this wasn't possible. Mesereau confronted Lamarck with attempting, along with his wife, another Neverland employee, to sell his story to a tabloid through a broker. And then came Bob Jones, a longtime former Jackson employee, who testified about witnessing Jackson and Jordan Chandler embracing and cuddling on an airplane back from Europe. At this point, the prosecution was impeaching its own witnesses, with Jones on the stand denying that he had witnessed Jackson licking Jordan's head on the flight. The prosecution tried to show his story had changed, that in a book proposal, Jones said he had witnessed the licking incident. Another prior bad acts witness was Adrienne McManus, another former maid who testified that she saw Jackson kiss and fondle three young boys, including Jordan Chandler and child actor Macaulay Culkin. I should note again that Culkin has always maintained that Jackson never behaved inappropriately with him. All right, so this former maid did um, Mesereau, let me guess, did he pulverize her too? I'm thinking of synonyms. <laughs> like he, he extirpated her. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to imagine um, being an immigrant working um, like third shift for minimum wage at a giant ranch in the middle of nowhere in a small town in California for literally the most famous man in the world. Yeah. And and you see something like that. I mean, I get why they wouldn't report this, right? Um but also why would why wouldn't they report this? They're they're yeah. witnessing him molesting children, right? Allegedly. Yeah. Uh, allegedly, right. And that and that was a question I had for Scott Ross, who was Michael Jackson's private investigator for the trial under Thomas Mesereau. With respect to these peripheral people that came in, I guess the next question is, why didn't they go to the police when they saw something like that? I don't care what country you're from. You know that that oral copulation with an underage boy is illegal in every country on the planet. Um, I, I don't believe for one second that they would continue to work in an environment like that. Between the three former Neverland employees who testified to seeing Jackson behaving inappropriately with children, there were multiple legal battles, filings, and cases they were involved in that were brought up in their testimony. When Prosecutor Zonin was asking Adrian McManus about a separate lawsuit involving her brother-in-law, Judge Melville joked to the courtroom, How many lawsuits are we going to cover? Jackson attorney, Thomas Mesereau. And they put on witnesses who were talking about seeing oral sex in the showers and oral sex in the, you know, the pool area and... You know, a lot of their witnesses were saying very disturbing things about Michael Jackson, which have left untested and unexamined by someone who knew what they were doing, could have had a very damaging effect and probably did have a damaging effect, even though he was exonerated. Uh, did our victim uh, testify in that case? Here is former Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. He did they not. They tried to get him to and he declined. Yeah, see, that's really a shame because he might have made that case. I have to tell you, Brandon, he was—he would have been a miraculous witness. You know, in meeting with him for the 
period of time that I did, uh, knowing from my experience as a sex crimes prosecutor uh, and interviewing children, you know, I had done it many, many times. This kid uh, would have been a really wonderful witness. He really would have been. And he, I believe, was telling the truth. Jordy Chandler had no inclination to cooperate with us. Prosecutor Ron Zonin. And didn't. Now, I never talked to him. It was Tom Snedden who did. I sat in the room on a few of those conversations and listened to Tom's end of the conversation. Um, Tom was the one who knew him and had a reasonably good relationship with him and really tried his hardest to get his cooperation. And, and he wouldn't do it. I mean, at the end of a few conversations, he made it really clear he wasn't going to cooperate. He wasn't going to testify. If we make any effort to subpoena him, he'll go live in Europe for the next three or four years, which he's certainly capable of doing. He had more than enough money. But Jordan Chandler's mother was available. And so June Chandler testified for the prosecution. It was, by all accounts, sincere and difficult to listen to. True crime author Aphrodite Jones wrote a book based on her reporting from the trial, Michael Jackson Conspiracy, where she argues that the whole case was a setup. The book's foreword was written by Jackson attorney Thomas Mesero. I asked Aphrodite Jones in our interview if she remembered June Chandler's appearance in court and if she found it persuasive. Of course, I remember every word of it. I was there. What does that make you think, or what are your thoughts in rectifying that? Of I don't rectify. I don't. I don't rectify that, Brandon, at all. I have never claimed that because I wrote a book about Michael Jackson being innocent of having molested the Arviso boy and the criminal trial in Santa Maria that that absolves him from any accusations by the Jordy Chandler group. Um, I don't. I wasn't there. I was not in the bed. Um, I don't know what transpired between Michael Jackson and Jordy Chandler, but I will say that I am not willing and never have been willing to uh, lump Jordy Chandler in with Gavin Arvizo and to say that, like Tom Mesero would like to say, that Michael Jackson is completely innocent and never would harm a child in his life. I don't know that. I can't say that, and I won't say that, especially because of the testimony of June Chandler. I have never said that Michael Jackson is completely innocent of any accusation because I don't know that. On direct examination, prosecutor Tom Snedden had June testify to the argument she had with Michael Jackson in Las Vegas over not wanting her son to share a bed with him. This coming at the very beginning of his travels with their family. Audio and video recording wasn't allowed in the courtroom. So we had actors perform this exchange between prosecutor Tom Snedden and June Chandler from her testimony. The actor playing Tom Snedden speaks first. Now, could you describe for the jury Mr. Jackson's demeanor at the time they came back to the room? He was sobbing. He was crying, shaking, trembling. Michael Jackson was? He was. And what about your son's demeanor? He was quiet. Now, at that point in time, did Mr. Jackson tell you why he was upset or crying? Yes. All right, tell the jury what he said. He said, you don't trust me? We're a family. Why are you doing this? Why are you not allowing Jordy to be with me? And I said, he is with you. He said, but my bedroom, why not in my bedroom? We fall asleep, the kids have fun, boys. Here, Thomas Mesero objected 
on grounds of non-responsive and narrative, which basically means the witness is off-topic from the question and rambling. Prosecutor Snedden got June Chandler back on track. What I said to Michael was, this is not... This is not anything that I want. This is not right. Jordy should be able to do what he wants to do. He should be able to fall asleep where he wants to sleep. Is this you talking or Mr. Jackson speaking? I was saying this, and Michael was trembling and saying, We're a family. Jordy is having fun. Why can't he sleep in my bed? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing going on. Don't you trust me? June Chandler's testimony at the trial was heartbreaking. Reporter Diane Diamond. You could see all these years later what this had done to her. Uh, I mean, she used to be a model. She was beautiful. She looked like Bianca Jagger to me. She was just gorgeous. And on the stand all those years later, she was still a beautiful woman. But she had such pain in her eyes and in her voice. And she admitted on the stand that she had done wrong, that her son didn't talk to her anymore, and made it very clear that sexual abuse had happened between her son and Michael Jackson. She was fully convinced of that. Thomas Mesro, of course, cross-examined June Chandler. He tried his best to frame for the jury that June and her ex-husband, Evan Chandler, had a united front for a settlement before there were any reports to the police or Child Protective Services. June denied this on the witness stand, and for those familiar with the previous case, it simply wasn't true. Worth pointing out, since so much of the defense's strategy was about perfectly remembering events, in the case of June Chandler's appearance, both she and Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro had many key dates and events out of order and completely incorrect although there weren't arguments about it in the courtroom. Regardless, it seemed like Mesero wasn't able to disprove or cast any doubt over the inappropriateness of Jackson's relationship with the woman's son. He tried, at least, to show that she hadn't personally witnessed any sexual contact occur by asking if she'd ever seen Jackson or Jordan Chandler take showers or baths together. She answered no. To that point, on recross examination, Prosecutor Snedden asked June Chandler if in all the time that they were together in Europe, in Disneyland, at her house, in New York, and at Neverland in 1993, when Jordan and Jackson were sleeping in the same room, in the same bed, if June had ever seen her son take a shower or a bath away from Michael Jackson. June said no again and again. At the end of her recross examination by Prosecutor Snedden, was this exchange. You told the jury that it's been 11 years since you've had any conversation with your son Jordan, correct? Correct. Is that by your choice? No. You told the jury that as a result of the conversation with Mr. Jackson in Las Vegas, where he urged you to trust him, uh, you okay? Yes, I'll be okay. Thank you. That during that conversation in Las Vegas, where Mr. Jackson urged you to trust him, Do you recall that? I do. Do you regret ever doing that? Very much so. Nothing further. Wow, man, that's, that's that's devastating. It was, I mean, reading it and hearing it played back with people performing it, it's pretty convincing testimony. 
But less convincing was another mom in this trial, and that was Gavin's mom, Janet. Oh, did she testify too? She did, and but she did not testify about any alleged molestation because she didn't claim to have witnessed any of it. Her oh. focus was more on the family being held against their will and all that business. Here's NBC's Mike Taibbi again reporting outside the courthouse. Now, prosecutors are relying on the accuser's mother for detailed testimony about the surveillance and alleged death threats she says the Jackson camp used to try and control and intimidate her family, and she denies repeatedly that she ever wants any money from Jackson. Wow, okay, so how long did her testimony go for? Five days, and it was as much of a shit show as you can expect. Oh, man. Holy and if smokes. you're interested in some toppings on the crazy sandwich, Omar, Janet Arvizo at the time of the trial had married her boyfriend, then fiance, and now husband, Major Jay Jackson, and she had taken his last name. You must be joking. No. So when she got called to the stand, her name was Janet Jackson. No, I don't believe it. And the mother had her own problems. She lived with a violent husband for many years, and and emotionally and psychologically it showed. Prosecutor Ron Zonin. She wasn't a pleasant person at times, and she didn't present as a pleasant person when she was on the witness stand. And juries very often, you know, adhere to the good guy, bad guy theory of criminal trial practice. They they want to like whoever's up there, whether it's a defendant or a witness. They're, they, they tend to associate credibility with how well you like them. And she was not likable by any stretch of the imagination. Private investigator Scott Ross here talking about Jackson's defense attorney, Thomas Mesereau. Tom was chomping at the bit to get Janet Arvizo on the stand. So ultimately, we could ask about the Penny settlement. We could ask about the brand new Taurus that she paid $21,000 in, in cash, uh, the money that came out of that bank account that she had with her mother, money that came out of the settlement from Penny's when she told the welfare department she didn't own a car. She bought the car in her mother's name. We wanted her to testify. She was going to be our best witness because she's her own worst enemy which is clearly what happened. She imploded on the stand, started talking about being swept away by hot air balloons. Mesero played the audio tape of Janet's Department of Children and Family Services meeting, a meeting that was initiated by an official at Gavin's school who became worried for the boy following the airing of the Bashir documentary. Prosecutors tried to utilize the fact that a Jackson aide had convinced Janet to secretly record the DCFS interview as a sign that she was being monitored and controlled. In the tape, which eventually made it into the hands of the media, the Jackson aide can be heard telling Janet where to hide the tape recorder. Here's a clip which aired on the Abrams report on MSNBC. The mother even seemed to work with the Jackson investigator trying to tape the interviews. All right, so it won't be suspicious, the Jackson aide told Janet, according to the transcript played by MSNBC. I'm just going to put it here. Janet said, okay. And then the aide said, just need a place to put it when they are interviewing you. You don't have to do nothing. It's working. Regardless that an aide had Janet record the meeting, it didn't look good for the conspiracy charge that she had failed to ask the government employee for help if she was being held against her will. Maybe she had real credibility issues. For example, about the danger that she said that Jackson and his associates said that she was in. This is attorney Gloria Allred, who incidentally briefly represented the Chandlers in 1993, appearing on MSNBC's The Abrams Report. 
with Dan Abrams. But then we heard the audio tape played yesterday in court where in fact a, a, a Frank Tyson, a Michael Jackson representative or associate can be heard on the tape talking to her if it's true that he did ask her to secretly record that child welfare services interview. What was Jackson afraid of and why was he trying to isolate her and keep her at Neverland or away from the press? Yeah, the thing about them holding them against their will seems persuasive at times, but um, also, I don't think she was really the best person to explain it, you know, at least the way she did it. Um, But also, it's like, I can't get over her having all these opportunities to call the police and not doing it. Yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, it seems like she could have asked for help like a hundred times from anybody, like family, law enforcement the the grocer down the street the orthodontist at anybody yeah and she kind of addressed this in her own way in her testimony prosecutor ron zonin asked janet about the phone calls she had made to family members while she was staying at the calabasas country inn in suites and how she could have easily called the police janet testified that she thought instead this is all going to be resolved by god's miracles and that she figured There would be one day that all these people could give clues as to when me and my children would have disappeared and that this way this puzzle would have been put together. Prosecutors own it. We knew what her limitations were and and she certainly lived up to our expectations. We knew it was going to be a problem from the beginning. She really just didn't have the ability to be able to present in a way that juries would find likable and believable. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesereau Well, I remember things like that, that uh, we were trying to show the absurdity of this conspiracy charge and the absurdity of uh, allegations that Michael Jackson falsely imprisoned the family. Um, That he was going to, you know, at one point during cross-examination, she commented that she thought they were going to be put in a hot air balloon and flown, you know, out of the country. It It just got very bizarre, very strange, the testimony, and I think backfired. A lot of it, for the prosecution, backfired. I asked Prosecutor Ron Zonin if he ever felt like the prosecution attorneys were underdogs in the case. I, I wouldn't say underdogs. I don't think I've ever gone to trial as an underdog, and I've done many trials in the 37, 38 years I've been a prosecutor. Um, but I knew that there were challenges to this case that we weren't going to see in other cases. The amount of money that was expended on investigating the victim and the victim's family was something I'd never seen before. Um, They had, they got a hold of every single piece of paper that had ever been generated by anybody in that family, whether it was a check or a job application or some kind of a memo of some kind. Uh, they, They got a hold, illegally, got a hold of all of their medical records, everyone in the family. Um, They got a hold of psych records to the extent that those existed without complying with HIPAA, without requiring with a public notice to it at all or notice to the family. Um, It was, uh, they followed them, they videotaped them. Um, It was was a tremendous amount of harassment and intimidation to a family that really had done nothing to them other than reveal what other boys had revealed in the past. With so much prosecution carnage on the battlefield, it was now up to defense attorney Thomas Mesereau to decide the next steps in the case, which would determine the fate 
of Michael Jackson. The prosecution put on a lot of witnesses, gave me a lot of opportunity to cross-examine to my heart's content. And I remember thinking, I've had so many good days cross-examining witnesses in this case that I may never have a, you know, a chapter like this again. In fact, when the prosecution rested their case, I had to think long and hard about whether we should put on a defense or not. While lawyers from both sides were focused on the jury, it was impossible to extricate themselves from the larger public perceptions of the case. Jurors, although instructed by the judge to ignore all the hoopla surrounding the case, were of course drawn from the public, and public sentiment often finds a way into the courtroom. Both Ron Zonin and Thomas Mesereau, who both said they isolated themselves from media trial coverage, were still very conscious of these realities. And walking into that trial, nobody thought the defense had a chance. Let's face it, I mean, if you asked anybody on the globe who followed the case what was going to happen, they would have told you they don't think the defense has much of a chance. So, you know, when the prosecution arrested their case, I didn't think they had enough for a conviction. But I wasn't sure if we had enough for acquittals. And I thought about the Menendez case, where there was a hung jury initially in the first trial, and the judge, who clearly wanted a conviction, changed a lot of his rulings to help the prosecution get a conviction in the retrial. He wouldn't allow the defense to bring in a lot of the witnesses they called the first time around. They wouldn't let them bring in some of the experts they had called the first time around. I feared that uh, Judge Melville, in a retrial, uh, would have probably changed some of his rulings that helped, that helped us. For example, I feared he probably wouldn't let us play the outtakes. And um, I didn't know what else he might do to throw a bone to the prosecution. So I decided the time to win was now, the time to take risks was now, and I put on a full-blown defense case. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan, and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. If you have questions or comments on the show, or want to shower us with praise, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com.